If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Throughout history, people have got tattooed for a huge range of reasons. Whether religious devotion, artistic expression, or to demonstrate cultural belonging or even to demonstrate cultural difference. In today's episode, Dr. Matt Lodder talks to Charlotte Hodgman about his new book, Painted People, Humanity in 21 Tattoos, which explores everything from the punishment tattoos of ancient China to the pilgrim tattoos adopted by Victorian aristocrats, including a future king. Okay, so why don't we start then perhaps with you just telling us a little bit about the book. I've been working on this stuff for a very long time. I mean, at least since my PhD, which I I finished in 2010. I mean, probably even before that, really. Um, I initially, you know, was trying to do something more uh, straightforwardly, you know, history of tattooing, and that was more narrowly constrained to... Again, stories that haven't really been told about the industry and about about the key players involved, and particularly trying to take this art historical approach of thinking of not just about you know uh, the kind of chronological or sociological aspects of tattooing, but really think about it as a as an artistic practice, or at least to be clear, think about it in the same ways we think about other forms of of creative practice. 
But it ended up when we ended up pitching the book, it became something a bit a bit different to a history of tattooing. I think I, I call it in the book specifically a history through tattooing. You know, um, art history as a discipline has these big claims that we can kind of understand people and places in the past by looking at the objects that they've made. And I guess like underpinning everything in the book is like if that is true for altarpieces, if it's true for the kind of art we see in galleries and country houses and palaces and stuff like that must be true also for the kind of art that people wear on their bodies and actually getting to those images and thinking about them as images you know of of products of individual lives but also products of moments in time and particular places with their own histories um you can get access to some stories or some insights into things that maybe other kinds of investigation uh don't get you to right so i was really surprised that you know there's a lot of history of tattooing in the book but we also get to some places like copyright law and the beef trade during the cold war and (laughs) the ancient persian postal system and the care of children in the early 20th century and you know the, the the limits of archaeology as a method like all of these things anchored on really interesting and fun stories i think uh, about tattoo people from history but we can use those tattoos to get to much bigger stories i think than uh tattoos are often used to tell you know which are often just much more narrow and much more personal Mm, yeah it's interesting you mentioned about the archaeology because obviously tattooing goes back a long long time what kind of evidence are we kind of looking at because obviously skin goes how do we know about tattooing sort of in ancient times yeah my my friend Gemma Angel who's a historian of like preserved tattoos names her names her blog um life plus six months after a quote that I used in the book from a guy who was a tattooer and academic he he said tattoos yeah tattooing is a mayfly art right it like it lasts as long as you're alive and then rots away in the ground for a few months and then it's gone you know as much as we're worried about tattoos being permanent or as much as my mother at least is worried about tattoos being permanent um they don't last that long but of course like just sort of by accident or in some cases through deliberate preservation in the case of for example egyptian mummies um, tattoos have survived the centuries and millennia. There's not many of those very, very old ones. I mean, literally fewer than a, a few dozen. There's a, a constantly updated list that some colleagues of mine who are archaeologists make of mummies with tattoos. But from the few that we have got from cultures uh, you know, from South America, from Egypt, from Europe um, and elsewhere, all across, for example, Siberia... We can start learning what tattooing was like in the past. And in some cases, they're very, very individual data points. Like the first chapter in the book is a story of Otzi the Iceman, who is, at least for the moment, the oldest preserved tattooed specimen, tattooed man that we have. Um, He's from about five and a half thousand years ago, died on the Austro-Italian Alps, um, murdered, shot in the back with an arrow, left to die in the snow. Um, His body was sort of revealed in the early 90s as climate change began to melt the snow around him uh he's covered in tattoos he's got these little tally marks all over him but he's the only person from his culture that we've ever found and actually we don't really know anything else about his cultural background let alone about him as an individual um been loads of amazing scholarship done on him the things he had for dinner and how his shoes were made but his tattoos are really interesting because they are potentially medical in nature or kind of medico-magical they are little tally marks crosses and dashes on sites of his body where he has it seems inflammation or other kinds of 
potentially pain. So maybe the tattooing was thought to be itself therapeutic or maybe it was meant to invoke some kind of spiritual or magical response. Maybe, you know, the physical response of getting tattooed, all those endorphins and blood uh, rushing to the area was thought to be curative. We just don't know. And in fact, because we know nothing else about his cultural tradition in that period, which is, you know, basically the early Bronze Age, called the Copper Age, between the Iron Age, um, we just have to kind of infer... But then we have relatively the same age, for example, in Egypt, mummies that died pre-dynastic Egypt, so who died in the deserts of Egypt, who weren't actively preserved and wrapped, but just whose bodies happened to desiccate and were preserved by pure chance. And those specimens, those bodies, those people had tattoos on them, which are starting to be revealed through modern imaging techniques. They're not often visible with the naked eye, but you put them through ultraviolet light or you put them through other kind of magical machines that go ping if you're an archaeologist. And we're revealing it literally, you know, very, very regularly now as these studies are being done on specimens that have sometimes been in archaeological collections and museums for over 100 years. For example, big pictorial tattoos of of bulls or of um, sheep or of decorative designs that are found elsewhere on other kinds of decorative forms. So, in those cases, in the case of those Egyptians, for example, we can find real interesting commonality between the tattoos and the kind of things people were putting on pots and on mosaic and on rock art and things, and kind of infer that, yeah, tattooing is part of the visual life world of these people. And that, I think, again, from a contemporary point of view, is quite understandable, right? People are getting tattooed on them, the images that they see around them. Uh, in our day, it might be things they see on Instagram. <laughs> uh, back in back in pre-dynastic Egypt, sort of you know three and a half thousand years before the birth of Christ, uh, we have you know uh, tattoos of, of of things that we find on pots and on ceramic ware and things like that. Mm. And do we have an idea how these tattoos were actually done? Yeah, I mean, again, interesting research is being done on those um, uh, specimens that we have, and there's some really interesting work being done as we speak. So Otzi's, it seems that they were done by an incision method, so by opening up the skin, creating those little tally marks or crosses with a sharpened blade of some kind, whether that was obsidian or whether that was um, sharpened flint, you know. And then you rub soot from the fire, and then it heals over. Um, basically, to, to make a tattoo, really, all you need is a way of creating a wound to sufficient depth in your skin and something to make a pigment out of carbon black from a fire or soot from an oil lamp will do. And in the Pacific, often those um, tattoos are also done with uh, plant pigments, so things things that come from, from particular species of plants. But with the Egyptian ones, they seem more likely to have been done with some kind of, again, quite recognisable to modernise needle techniques. And there's really interesting work happening now with archaeologists, particularly in the Americas, who are going back to artefacts that have been documented for a long, long time as needles used for sewing or needles used for leatherworking or needles used for medicinal purposes. And by looking at them very closely under microscopes, looking at them very closely with new scientific analysis, you can try and disambiguate needles used for tattooing because they, they round off in a certain way and they have pigment marks on them as compared to ones that were used for other kinds of handicrafts. That's harder to do in places where tattooing was done with metal implements because the wear patterns are not quite so discernible. Um, but, yeah, like, r- remarkably, I think, tattooing hasn't changed very much in five and a half thousand years. Um, you just need something sharp 
and an ability to put some pigment in, you know, and and and, and the, the specific techniques do vary a bit depending on time and geography, but the basic, that's the basic technique. I mean, there was an idea for a long time uh, in the early 20th century that tattooing was so weird and so surprising and so odd, and why would anyone do that to themselves as far as Western anthropologists were concerned, that it must have come from somewhere, that someone must have kind of invented tattooing and it must have spread. But I think the more plausible version is that tattooing is something that can happen quite easily by accident. You can cut yourself by the fire or you a, a, a spark or a hot piece of unburnt material can explode from a fire, embed itself in your skin, heal over, that it sparks the idea that this might be possible to use in a more direct way. And then we're off to the races, right? So I think more plausibly, we have sev- several origin points for tattooing around the world over deep historical time like right back probably at least 40 45,000 years ago and maybe even longer that's really interesting and it's it does make you wonder why there is still so much like you're saying people say it's a permanent thing you know what are you doing yeah. and it's this old and yet still got the same those same sort of questions are those sort of questions or those sort of arguments against tattooing do they go back a long way that a historical feeling yeah it, it really is i mean one of the one of the reasons really why that kicks in in, in european thought is that in the big kind of intellectual progenitors of current, you know, European thinking, so the ancient Greeks, for example, and the ancient Romans, like, they, they didn't have mainstream tattoo traditions in their own cultures. They did have tattooing around them in the cultures that they were um, conquering, and they had tattooing in a sort of subcultural sense within the borders of their empire. But so very, very early on, you know, se- several thousand years ago, at least in European thought, tattooing was this thing that demarcated some people from some other people. And so tattooing has this kind of stigmatization within it, right? Um, and as certainly the kind of early modern period onwards in, in Europe develops, we get this idea that almost like tattooing is something that primitive races do and white Europeans don't do. We've sort of evolved out of it. You know, that's an idea of cultural teleology. In the early versions of that thinking, right, we have when the Europeans first encounter the Americas, when Columbus first set foot in the Americas in in the late 15th century, there is an idea actually that like finding tattooed people in the Americas reminds people back in Europe of the tattooed people they'd read about in their own history and gone, oh, okay. These people are just like us. It's quite a humanist account of tattooing in the late 15th, early 16th century. Um, it is coded in this kind of, you know, problematic evolutionary way of like, oh, well, they're a bit behind us in some kind of timeline and we're obviously better than them. But actually, we're, tattooing proves they're just like us. By the time we get to the 18th century and the colonisation and the more active um, age of sail and the age of empires... Um, particularly that period of the Pacific, as I lay out in the book, that conversation changes quite rapidly, actually, where tattooing, far from being something that connects us to people, uh, us being white Europeans, to people that we're encountering elsewhere in the world, is actually something that, again, demarcates them as different and fundamentally different. Um, Very, very quickly uh, into the 19th century, this idea embeds itself in European thinking that... Europeans had never been tattooed and there was no tattooing ever in Europe and or if there ever was we'd forgotten all about it and so tattooing was this primitive barbaric almost inhuman thing to be doing and um something which is 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 separating 
uh, white European uh, white Europeans from from people elsewhere in the world and yeah you know so much of of that thinking of of its permanence it's the pain of the kind of messing with your god-given body all of those things embed very very deeply um in you know certainly certainly from the kind of yeah early early modern periods to the present day and so much again as i lay out in the book through a kind of intellectual history of this stuff through stories of you know this is a good example of a story that i'm telling about two thieves who robbed this drunk guy in london (laughs) in the 1840s jane and mary um through their story we get to some of this intellectual history of why tattooing criminality and why tattooing and uh, and, and, and deviants are so intertwined, and it, it, and why those feelings, despite these long histories, are so, you know, inextricably uh, interlinked, despite the efforts of historians <laughs> over the over the years. Yeah, because there is definitely a tendency to, particularly kind of in sort of Western thinking and British thinking, is that it's it was something that sailors did, that you know criminals right. did. But actually, in the book, there's some great stories about Victorian aristocrats and even the future Edward the Seventh yeah. had a tattoo. Can you tell us some of the stories from that sort of period? Yeah, well, the only reason we have a tattoo industry um, in the West is because of aristocratic patronage, right? So there'd been some professional tattooing, by which I mean going in and paying someone you didn't know to get tattooed in the United States as early as the 1850s. Before that, lots of tattooing going on, including in public schools and including amongst aristocrats, actually, but but in a much more intimate and, and, and vernacular way, right? You'd get tattooed by friends or, or by colleagues, you know. But it takes the encounter with Japan, uh, the opening up of Japan to the West in the eight, late 1850s, to really kind of make tattooing visible as an art form. And because in that moment, like in the latter half of the 19th century, everything that's Japanese is super trendy. Tattooing is really part of that. And yeah, Edward VII, before he was king, when he was sort of sent off in the aftermath of Prince Albert's death to by Victoria to sort of grow up, was tattooed on a pilgrimage in Jerusalem. Uh, pilgrims have been getting tattooed in the Holy Lands right back to the late, 16, uh, late 16th century. Kind of a done thing, even to the present day. If you go as a pilgrim to Jerusalem, as a Christian pilgrim, you can get tattooed with a something halfway between a mark of religious devotion and a holiday souvenir. <laughs> um, Edward the Seventh had that done uh, in 1861, and then inspired by him directly, his two sons, uh, Albert Victor, who died before he could ascend to the throne, and then the future King George V, Prince George, were both tattooed in Japan, and then subsequently in Jerusalem as well. George writes back to his mother, you know, um, I got tattooed just like Papa. And of course, like, everyone wants to copy the royals, or certainly did in the 19th century, and both in the UK and on the continent of Europe and in the United States, the habits of the royals become, you know, something that everyone else wants to aspire to. And so in the kind of House of Lords, in the smart corners of of, of Mayfair and in uh, John German Street, um, and in the United States, in New York, in the racket clubs and the the work, the the the, 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 the elite men's clubs, getting very fashionable Japanese style tattoos, um, either of very Japanese designs or sometimes copies of your favourite paintings, scenes of hunting and you know grouse coursing and things that you might do if you're a rich, wealthy uh, member of the House of Lords, become the become de rigueur, and that for the first time makes it possible for tattooists to charge money and make a singular living as working tattoo artists, you know. So we have kind of royal patronage and royal interest and and money in the business to, to thank for everything that comes afterwards, you know. 
still to come on the History Extra podcast. You could, in um, ancient China, be charged with a list of what were called ink crimes, so everything from kind of stealing to repetitious adultery. And if you did, you did it severely enough, you know, and you were caught enough times, you would end up being tattooed in a place that was visible. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. So it's interesting you say about there are certain fashions in in tattooing. What other examples have you got of where today probably, you know, you think of stars and butterflies and things like that are kind of all kind of very common images that you sort of see on people's bodies. Are there any other examples of fashionable tattoos from the past? Yeah, so so we have that Japanese stuff, which is... Again, it's a very straightforward art historical story, right? You'll sort of look for it in vain in in the indexes of catalogues to Japonism, but but literally people are getting tattooed the same designs that are coming from Japanese prints that people are putting on uh, ceramic ware and on furniture, the same designs being used by tattoo artists. In the 1940s, you know, people are getting Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse or portraits of Gary Cooper. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and, 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 and when we get through to the, uh, the 1990s and beyond, people are, are copying designs that they're seeing on their favourite celebrities. I mean, there's even, again, I, I lay this out in the book, an example, uh, as early as 1929, um, Elsa Schiaparelli, the famous French fashion designer, is doing a kind of tattoo themed knitwear so you can um you know you can you can put on this bathing suit that's covered in tattoo designs that make you look you know sort of scandalously as if you might even be naked because they're 
bathing suits are knitted in this sort of bronzed, skin-toned wool. And tattooing becomes this kind of part of edgy fashion, like a hundred years ago, which um, is is almost sort of the opposite way around to what you were just talking about. Tattooing seeping back into fashion from from people who are getting tattooed, you know, as well as things that happen in the opposite direction. One thing I found interesting in the book was when you're talking about punishment tattoos. Yeah. So tattoos haven't always been voluntary things that people want to do. Where where do we see that kind of happening? Yeah, well, you know, one of the reasons why tattooing is so so important in lots of mainstream cultural traditions is it's demarcative of status. You know, it can mark you out as different from someone else. Um, for good or for ill it can it can encode gender it can encode you know tribal affiliation or, or familial affiliation because it doesn't wash off and because it's not easily removed it's also really useful for literally stigmatizing people right we you know, that word stigma which we get from from greek it refers to literal marks on the skin and and the greeks and the romans and the ancient chinese uh, and, and in in, in uh, ancient japan as well all use tattooing as a way of making visible criminals and um, the british army too used tattooing to mark deserters you could in um, ancient china be charged with a list of what were called ink crimes so everything from kind of stealing to repetitious adultery and if you did you did it severely enough you know and you were caught enough times you would end up being tattooed in a place that was visible often even on the face invading armies would also sometimes use tattooing to stigmatize or, or punish or, or even dehumanize um, people under their capture of course that happened in holocaust concentration camps it was happening um, in the korean war on both sides prisoners were tattooed with political slogans to which they did not agree in order to kind of make them, you know, humiliate them, I suppose. And my favourite example of this is 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 from Japan, where uh, a lot, a lot for a long time, punishment tattooing was done uh, in the armpit, right? So it was done under, under the arms. And actually, as contemporary bodysuit tattooing developed in Japan, that much more artistic stuff that we might imagine when we think about Japanese tattooing developed. Even to this day, traditional Japanese like artistic tattooing leaves gaps in this art in this part of the body because you d- you won't be able to show that you weren't covering up or trying to efface right. your um, your criminal tattoos, you know. And in fact, there's lots of examples. I mentioned a few in the book of people who had been stigmatized with these punishment tattoos of trying to remove them only one i ever found was successful and that was a a particular case in ancient greece where this guy went to a shrine and prayed to the right god and the god miraculously got rid of it so uh, in the absence of divine intervention tattoos are pretty difficult to get rid of (laughs) so why the armpit why was that why was that? Well, the choice? I, I think it was a, in that particular context. It was just a kind of way that you know it wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna be on the face. It wasn't gonna make your daily life um, particularly difficult. The, the level of punishment or the level of stigmatization mm. was not in those particular cases intended to be totally disqualifying from public life. But it was enough to be like if you know if I'm arresting you and you're coming to prison and I want to check if you've got a previous conviction, um, this is a good way of of checking that whether you've been a naughty boy or girl uh, in the past. You know. Yeah. And um, from your kind of research, have you found that it was more unusual for women to be tattooed? And how have reactions to women with tattoos differed from those of men? Yeah, well, one of the things that I find a lot, so I sort of track, you know, 
particularly in the Western context, articles, you know, newspapers, academics even saying, hey, guess what? Tattooing is not just for sailors anymore. Like, And a big part of that, and I've you know, found examples of that for over 140 years, and a big part of those is often like, oh my God, you'll never believe what women are up to these days. Um, there's a lovely one that I quote in my book, one of my favourites of those from the 1950s, where um, this uh, the woman's correspondent of the Hull Daily Mail, who's called... Pseudonymous, pseudonymously Miss Humber. She's like, what women are getting tattooed now? You wouldn't believe it. It's disgraceful. And the following week, these young girls write in, and this is yeah, in the 1950s, they wrote in and say, look, we're not drunken sailors. We're getting pretty tattoos on our on our shoulders to show, show off in our evening dresses. Yeah, and that's as long ago as, as the 1950s. <sighs> what those stories often have been a way of doing is showing pictures in, in newspapers of women in less clothing than would otherwise be appropriate in, in early 20th century press. So there's a lot of shock here. And of course, like tattooing as a as an encodement of gender has become a very kind of constant trope of those responses. Many cultures, tattooing is exclusively a female practice. In the uh, in the Arctic, for example, normative tattooing in, in Inuit cultures is exclusively a female practice. In um, some parts of the Pacific, although not in others, like in Fiji, for example, tattooing is something that women do, not men, um, do and wear. But yeah, in, in a mainstream kind of Western context, tattooing is, has been thought of as this masculinized thing. It comes with these associations of of, of, of aggression and pain and, 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 and conflict. I tell a story in the book of um, this uh, sort of genderqueer person, genderqueer woman called Joe Carstairs, who lived in the early 20th century, who, you know, amazing what you can get away with with if you're a billionaire. She was one of the richest people in the world at the time, inheritor of a fortune that came from um, her grandfather, who was part of Standard Oil. Um, But she decided to sort of spend her fortune on becoming a powerboat racer, raising a private army and of kind of defying as many gender norms as possible she she as i said chose to be called joe rather than her birth name of marion she dressed as a man she dated marlena dietrich very flamboyantly um and interestingly in her case um she was tattooed with with very kind of masculine sailor kind of tattoos and again, in a sort of weird place that tattooing history can get us to, her one of her mother's uh, partners, one of her stepfathers, was a guy called Serge Voronoff, who was a Russian-French scientist who was experimenting with injecting people with monkey testicles in order to increase their virility. Um, and <laughs> I expecting you to say that. <laughs> no, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And off and off the back of those off the back of those experiments, there was some really interesting research happening with scientists and sociologists sort of thinking well look if like masculinity and femininity are not you know if if they can be changed if we can just inject some people with enough monkey testicles uh we get to some manliness maybe there's something culturally conditioned about about masculinity and femininity you know and so a remarkably kind of progressive thesis for the 1920s Mm. And two of the people that, that are, in, are interested in these monkey pulp experiments, um, a couple of German sociologists called um, the Wertings, they write a book about this phenomenon and they have a whole chapter about tattooing and they basically say, yeah, tattooing is a feature of a dominant sex in a society. So in a culture where men are dominant, tattooing becomes masculine coded. And they say that one of the reasons for that is that 
if you are um, a woman in modern society, you're not working, you're at the at home, you've got time to make yourself beautiful. But tattoos, one and done. You decorate yourself, it's over. It's very efficient as a decorative practice, tattooing. And they compare that, you know, uh, to ancient Egypt, which they view as a kind of female-dominated society where largely tattooing seems to have been done by women. And yeah, have these ideas about that, that yes, tattooing encodes a certain kind of cultural dominance in modern society that's to do with masculinity. And yeah, I think it's super interesting, even um, in contemporary trans uh, discourse, you know, lots of trans men are using tattooing to really accentuate or engage with their masculinity and I found in my research uh, letters or anguish letters from trans women um, and even kind of quite scathing reports by doctors treating transgender patients in the early part of the 20th century uh, saying, you know, that because they were tattooed, they couldn't achieve their kind of, you know, out the, the presentation of femininity that they required because it was so heavily coded with masculinity. So, yeah, that, that, that relationship comes with both interesting historical legacies, but also some really interesting possibilities if you, if you want to kind of think about, about contemporary gender politics, you know. When do we start to see tattooing be recognised as a, an artistic profession? Yeah, well, t- I mean, tattoo, tattooists have been, in the Western context again, calling themselves artists for a very long time. Uh, this guy called Sutherland MacDonald, who was the first real visible professional tattooer in the UK, who was working on German Street, he claimed, um, not entirely accurately, but certainly he popularised the term, to have coined the term tattooist as a contraction of tattoo artist, because tattooer made him sound too much like a plumber. <laughs> so that was that was in the, 18, in the 1880s. Uh, anthropologists had been making the analogy between tattooing and art even earlier than that, you know, when they were writing about tattooing in the Pacific, for example, they talk about it as an art. And I think, you know, art history as a profession hasn't generally taken tattooing particularly seriously for a very long time. Um, and I, I have to say, to be really clear, I'm not interested in kind of bestowing upon tattooing the status of art. It doesn't need me to do that. And in fact, ironically, art historians are the least interested in doing that than anyone in saying something is or isn't an art form. I want to kind of think about what happens if we think about something in the same way we might think about other forms of artistic practice. But I don't want to kind of say, yes, the great Dr. Lodder says tattooing is art now. Um, but even but even the, even the institutional art world has been putting tattooing in art galleries in a in a in an art sense since the 1950s. You know, there was there was a, a tattoo tattooer included in uh, the Black Eyes Lemonade show uh, in the Whitechapel in 1953. There was a solo show of, of tattoo art held at the Camden Art Gallery in 1971. Um, and the same artist who did that, a guy called Les Scuse, he was giving lectures at Bristol Art School uh, around the same time. So, you know, even though again these cliches, oh, tattooing is an art form now. You know, it's it's come to become this great modern art form. Um, tattooists have been thinking about themselves and talking about themselves as artists for you know at least as long as I've been alive, and certainly back back into the second half of the twentieth century. I had always thought of perhaps people had their tattoos; it was a personal thing. They were probably hidden; they didn't yeah. have them. Have examples of people kind of not flaunting them exactly, but wanting people to see them. Well, this is I think this is those two things sort of going going tandem, right? So lots of tattoos, most tattoos, I suppose. In a, in a Western context where it's not part of our mainstream cultural tradition, have been hidden away. And so the tattoos that we've seen or even known about have been on people who've shown their bodies off. So mm. people who are performers 
or people who are rolling their sleeves up at work and digging the roads, right? Or or actually aristocrats who are showing them off, you know, for a little bit of shock value at nicer feet parties. And so this vast majority of kind of vernacular, quite quite normal tattooing is invisible, has been invisible, even to historians. And I think it's really interesting how those those two things, those visibility issues, build to a kind of more a particularly narrow idea about who gets tattooed and why. You know, I, I again talk in the book about early studies of tattooing by criminologists and what criminologists are doing is they're looking at prisons where there is lots of tattooing happening and actually where there are lots of bodies that can be studied and going, oh, there's loads of tattoos here. Tattooing must be linked to criminality, right? But but trying to look at tattooing more broadly is much harder. But of course, like, the flip side of that is to say that even even now, right? Even now, when tattooing is so visible, more visible than ever, undeniably, even though that's not a break from the past, it's, it's a continuation. There's there's no now and then, but there is a kind of uh, I think undeniable idea that tattooing is more visible than ever. But mm. it's never going to be fully acceptable because even when even when it's being patronised by kings and and members of the House of Lords or university lecturers like myself, it's still something which is a bit weird and a bit in our, in our against our cultural context a bit transgressive and so i think weirdly what this kind of constant story of uh skepticism tells us is that no matter how visible no matter which, which people get tattooed it's never fully gonna in our against our cultural context gonna become this completely acceptable practice and i think i'll be talking about this probably for the rest of my career because because yeah, weirdly, the story of like Edward the Seventh getting tattooed isn't quite a story of acceptance. It's a story of actually like precisely why tattooing is sort of so stubbornly, stra- <laughs> stubbornly strange. Yeah. And I, it does make me laugh. And I lay loads out throughout the book, and particularly in the in the conclusion, it does make me laugh that there are these kind of oh my god, you'll never guess who's getting tattooed now stories, you know, including ones about university lecturers from around the time I was born, including. Uh, one that I am very fond of from a hundred years ago that says, you know, tattooing has passed from the savage to the sailor, from the sailor to the landsman, and it's now to be found when it's many a tailored shirt, right? That's from 1926. Mm. The fact that those cliches persist and the fact that, yeah, the, the stories that, that, that you just alluded to persist is because there is something weird about marking yourself permanently, changing a relationship with time with 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 willingly undergoing pain with being touched by a stranger (laughs) all those things we have to do that we're not generally comfortable with um uh in 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 contemporary culture you know so yeah i think i think that's also something i you know in some respects and and i had a tattooist tell me this years ago you know stop telling people that like aristocrats were tattooed because i make my living tattooing 18 year olds who think it's edgy right and of course like you know i'm a middle-aged white academic i am if ever, if ever I was edgy, I'm certainly not now. But like, I think the reason this book is interesting to people, hopefully, and certainly why I have a career, is because there is something about this that intrigues people, even if they are kind of cynical about it. And um, my goal is not to try and say, "Oh yeah, tattooing's completely fine and acceptable and always has been." Quite the opposite, really. I think it's uh, the persistence of this cliche is, is indicative of its, you know, incurable strangeness against a Western cultural norm that was dr matt lodder senior lecturer in art history and theory at the university of essex painted people humanity in 21 tattoos is on sale now published by william collins 
Matt's written a feature sharing the stories of tattooed people from history for the January issue of BBC History Revealed. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 